One of the producers of our radio program, uh, Sean Cole, used to live in Toronto, and he went out to bars a lot when he was there. And at one point, he heard this rumor about the places that he was hanging out. A friend of mine basically said, you know, the thing about these bars, um, he actually said (laughs) the gasoline that allows them to function was cocaine. Meaning the staff is doing cocaine? The staff, the bartenders are on coke. And I was like, how did I not notice? You know, (laughs) I was like, I wondered how true that was. Did you do any coke tonight? Yeah. <laughs> How much? Just a bump. So that's like what that's is that? like a that's like the tip of a key. Uh, so this is one of uh, about a dozen bartenders that I interviewed, all anonymously. When she says a key, she means like like a house key. Hmm. You sniff it off of that. But I have done it while I'm working, but I don't do it until like later, like one past one. Oh, I see. Yeah. And how often does that happen? Um, like every weekend. I had this experience years ago. A friend sat me down and told me that she had just started going to AA. And she wanted me to know that she knew how annoying it must have been for me and all of our friends at the time that she was always on coke back when we first were getting to know each other. She was running to the bathroom all the time. She was really hyper. And I told her, I was like, I had no idea. I told her, I just assume like that's your personality. You're a little manic, small bladder. And of course, right, I think if you're not a daily drug user, you're not a big drug user, it doesn't occur to you that the people around you might be high. And Sean found that this bar scene he thought he knew so well did actually seem to be run on cocaine. So lots of bars in certain areas of town, definitely uh, coke is like fuel for the staff. Partly because, you know, these bars, it's like drinking on the job is kind of expected. People are buying me shots, and I see people I know, and I'm buying them shots, and then yeah. just to start to get the spins. It's like after you do like four or five shots, I'm like, okay, I don't want to be too drunk. I need something to like straighten up, straighten me up. Jeez, I really want a line right now to straighten this out. That's the phrase you keep hearing. Everyone uses it so loosely. Straightening out, you need to straighten out. Yeah, I just take a quick little jump down to the bathroom, you know, straighten yourself out, come upstairs. How often does that happen to you? Uh, eight minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So their bosses have to know, right? The bosses are doing it too sometimes. Uh, for the first little while the bar I worked at, the managers were doing lines of cocaine in order to sober up enough so that they could cash out to bartenders who were completely inebriated. Oh, I also knew a police uh, policemen who were partaking. In cocaine? In the in bathroom their- with the manager in uniform. It blew me away. I was so naive. I was like, what? It'd be like finding out Superman is, you know. Doing cocaine. Doing cocaine, exactly. Of course, to put it in perspective, this is a cop doing cocaine in a city whose mayor was caught on video smoking crack and stayed in his job. He's finally going to rehab now. And all of this got us thinking here at the radio show. How many people around us are high Like, right now. You know, like, right this second. Like, okay, if you're out in the world right now as you're hearing me say these words, look around at the people around you. Look at their faces. Could one of them be high? And I mean, everywhere you go, right? It's like, for example, we found this book um, that came out a couple of years ago by a guy named Ethan Bryson. So the title of the book is Addicted Healers, and the subtitle is Five Key Signs Your Healthcare Professional May Be Drug Impaired. And right here on page 
XVIII. It says rates of illicit drug use by healthcare professionals within the past year ranged from 8% to 20%, depending on the type of personnel within the healthcare industry. And then it says at any given time, roughly 3 to 5% of this population is using illicit drugs while they're caring for patients. 3 to 5% you mean of all healthcare professionals all across the profession. Wow. Which drugs? It, they all have their drug of choice and we actually sort of played this kind of word association game. Physicians, pills, oxycontin, oxycodone, uh nurses. Um intravenous opioid-based drugs, psychiatrists, Benzodiazepines, anesthesiologists, fentanyl. That you said that so fast. It's that's that is the biggest drug. I should point out here that Dr. Bryson is himself an anesthesiologist. Say it again, fentanyl. Fentanyl, fentanyl. It's a um, highly potent um, derivative of morphine. It's actually like eighty times more potent than morphine, and can you know significantly mess with your judgment. It's extremely addictive. And Dr. Bryson pointed out that most medical professionals don't have to take drug tests. Military personnel, on the other hand, do. Now, many of you reported last week on the investigation involving some of our airmen and illegal drug possession. This is the Secretary of the Air Force, Deborah Lee James, giving a press conference a few months ago. Basically, two lieutenants were busted for allegedly dealing amphetamines and ecstasy. And they were found out because they were sending text messages to other airmen about drugs. Well, it turns out that three of the 10 who were implicated in this drug investigation were from our Air Force Global Strike Command, which is the command where our ICBM missile forces reside. ICBM, that is? The nuclear warheads. Well, that doesn't seem like somebody we want high. Not someone we want high. Sean, are there surveys measuring how many of us are high all the time? I mean, there's not a lot of data. There's workplace drug tests, which uh, that show uh, 3.5% of workers test positive for drugs. Mm -hmm. But obviously that's only in workplaces that test for drugs in the first place. One of the experts on this data, who's wonderfully named Dr. Barry Sample Mm -hmm. from Quest Diagnostics, uh, told me drug use is a couple percentage points higher in places that don't test for drugs. Which jobs have the highest drug use? So the Department of Health and Human Services actually has numbers on that. Um, the latest ones that I found said, uh, so this is people who say, yes, I've done illicit drugs in the past month. People who work in real estate is about 7%. Uh, same for mining. Mining, 7%? Mi- mining. Uh-huh. Uh, retail is 9.5%. Construction workers is about 14 So that means... Roughly one in seven construction workers. Um, the highest is accommodation and food services. That would include, dare I say, bartenders. <laughs> it, yes, a, a hotel. Uh, excuse me, accommodation and food services. Uh, roughly one in six admit on this survey to using drugs. Could be higher though, right? It could be higher. What do you mean? It could be higher than one of six actually do drugs. Oh, it could be higher. It could be higher. Right. One out of six admit on the survey. One out of six admit on the survey to drug use. Some more of them actually might be doing it. I mean, yeah, maybe. Unless you try the survey in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> what 
today on our radio program, The Secret World of Getting High, which is okay, maybe not such a well-kept secret. It is all around us all the time. High people mingling with us, working, passing, laughing extra hard at our jokes. We don't even know why. We have stories today of great drug experiences and awful drug experiences and funny drug experiences, tales of miscalculation, bad judgment, and dumbassery. We have comedians Mark Marin and Wyatt Cenac from WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Stay with us. Akwan, high on the corporate ladder. So there's this secret society, many millions strong, people who are going through life high. Maybe you are part of the society. If not, you're probably dealing regularly with people who are cashiers, baristas, and stockbrokers, and cab drivers, maybe the cop writing that parking ticket. Alex Bloomberg has this story about just how hard it is to tell who is in that society and who isn't. Richard, for many years, was a member of that society, the Society of People Who Get High at Work. I would roll a thin joint and start smoking in the morning. I'd usually duck down at the one of the back stairways and, you know, take a few more tokes during the day. I'd smoke at lunch. I'd smoke a little bit in the afternoon. I would basically stay high all day long. And, and what exactly was your job title? My job, I was I was chief operating officer of, of the second largest ad agency in town. <laughs> How many people at your at your company knew that you were doing this? Um, somewhere between three and all of them. <laughs> Richard says that at the time, he thought he was hiding his habit, but in retrospect, who knows? One of the head executives toking up in the stairwell every day? How could he hide that? On the other hand, there's this. I had no idea that this was going on. And I'm Richard's son. I only found out that my dad was getting high at work every day long after the fact, when I was in my 30s. And I found out because my dad got cancer. It was a horrible week. It started with the discovery that the pain in my dad's back wasn't just a pinched nerve. And it ended with the diagnosis of lymphoma, a particular form of lymphoma that we had learned that week to root for because it's actually curable. That's the word they used. Back then, I didn't even know you could say that about cancer. But that whole week, my dad was convinced he had a different diagnosis, lung cancer. Even towards the end, when the doctors were pretty convinced the news was good, he insisted on it, which didn't make any sense. My father had quit smoking cigarettes way back in the 80s. When we pressed him about it, that's when he told us about the pot. My dad's cancer and recovery was a pivotal time for our family. Painful secrets came out. Much was said that needed to be said. My dad got into a 12-step program, and he's been clean for almost 15 years. But then, here at the radio show, someone suggested doing a show called I Was So High. And I realized something. I really wanted us to do that show. I had a lot of questions for people who got high all day. Questions about what they thought of themselves, what they thought of their families, what they were getting out of being high. I realized, in other words, I had a lot of questions for my dad. When did you use marijuana for the first time? Uh, I don't know. You were about a year and a half old. First, of course, I wanted the details. When did it start? When did it get serious? And for my dad, it started in the 60s. A friend rolled a joint at a party. It was fun. 
became something he did socially, getting high with friends, listening to Jefferson Airplane on the brand new FM station in town. And this part I knew. I remembered joints passed around when my parents' friends came over, rolling papers on the end table next to the couch. One afternoon, I answered the door and found a friend of my dad's. Turtleneck, sunglasses, what I remember is a Burt Reynolds mustache. He handed me a dime bag and said, this is for your father. My dad doesn't remember the first time he smoked weed at work, but it was probably around the time I was leaving middle school and entering high school. By the time I left for college, it had gone far beyond a thing he did at nights with friends to a thing he did routinely during the day while he'd walked the several blocks to a meeting with one of his firm's largest clients. I knew where every alleyway between our office on 7th Street and Proctor you know, on the other corner of downtown. And you're talking about um, a meeting with Procter & Gamble, one yeah. of the largest companies in the world that was one of your clients that is the... If there's yeah. any company less associated with um, habitual work time pot use, it, it has to be Procter & Gamble. Right. So they, so they, didn't, they, they didn't know... When you were making these presentations that you don't think they knew that you were high at the time, that you'd stopped in an alley on the way over and, and smoked a joint on the way over? N- no. I was putting something over on the straight world. Like, I'm not really part of your world. I'm just visiting here for a little bit. I think, I think that was something that was very, very much a part of being stoned. You know, here I was, this guy in a business suit, ducking down a back alley and smoking a joint. Another question I had for my dad. Were there people for whom his drug use was not a secret? Other members of the society of secret pot smokers that he'd duck into that alley with? Was he regularly sharing joints with, I don't know, the Kinko's guy while they both waited on a large print order? I could see a camaraderie developing between secret pot smokers, just like cigarette smokers at an office will go out and take smoke breaks together. But my dad says that for him, at least, it wasn't like that. Sure, he knew of other people at the agency who smoked pot, and yes, if you must know, they were mostly in the art department. But he mainly kept to himself. You increasingly live in a secret world that you can't reveal to the people who don't share that world. And there are an increasingly limited number of people who share the world. The more you use, the deeper you get into it, to the point where you're all alone in it. And you have to keep it a secret from everybody else. And you do really stupid things to keep to keep it a secret. Um, Really stupid. What do you think you have when you said really stupid? Well, I, I remember one time I, I went down, I stopped in Eden Park uh, on the way back to the office. And uh, I walked, got out of the car and I got stoned. I smoked a joint. And I came back and I realized that there were my, I locked my keys in the car. And uh, I couldn't, you know, I, I was stoned. I mean, my judgment was shot. I didn't know what to do. So I went around and I found a big rock and I broke the rear, uh, the little window in the rear and I reached in and unlocked the door and I then I, the back of the seat was full of glass and I had to go down to Ace Auto Glass and have the glass replaced and then finally I got to the office an hour and a half late for the meeting and I... <laughs> You know, I made, I made up some excuse. 
This image of my dad in his suit early morning, rooting around in the underbrush for a rock to throw through his own car window, I found it so shocking. It is one solution to the problem at hand, but it's hard to imagine a person who wasn't high, weighing all the options and deciding, you know the thing I need to do right now at 8 a.m. on a workday? Smash in my own car window. And I know, as rock bottom stories go, this is nothing special. In general, my dad's addiction story barely registers on the family dysfunction scale. But his marijuana use was starting to fray the edges of his life. He and his business partner, Dale, were having regular fights over my dad's inability to show up to meetings on time or fill out his timesheets or just get things done when he said he would. At a certain point, my dad sold his stake in the business for a nice chunk of money, but then he lost most of it on a string of failed business ventures. I remember my dad trying to explain a couple of them to me at the time. I was just out of college at this point, and I never really understood what the products actually were or how they were going to make any money. Only in retrospect did I realize, after the cancer and the secret came out, those business ideas, they made a lot more sense if you were stoned. All told, in today's dollars, my dad probably lost somewhere north of half a million. And this brings me to the most basic question I had for my dad, the question that lay underneath all the other ones. Why do you think you were getting high every day at work? Um, I think that I was getting high because I really, I didn't really feel that marketing was a worthwhile thing to do. This is part of it for sure. Getting high allowed my dad to retreat from this reality that he didn't want to face that he wasn't a hippie anymore, but in fact, a guy in a suit with a job in advertising. But that answer, it didn't feel like the full truth to me because he wasn't just running from reality at work. He was running from it at home as well. The one time in particular I remember was, um, you know, we were on vacation out in California. It was one of the times we went to California. We did a big road trip across the country. It was sort of crazy. And we'd found some unbelievably beautiful little you know, swimming hole in Northern California and we'd set up a tent and the weather was perfect and we were all getting out and we'd put on our swimsuits and we were all getting ready to um, get in and you, and and we'd just been visiting your friends Gene and Jan in San Francisco and they'd given you oh. some, <laughs> I still remember, they, they'd given you some Berkeley gold as they called it. Yeah. Uh, and I remember you rolling a joint and saying something like, you know, but first it's time for a little Berkeley gold or something like that. And I remember being really upset and and part of i think the reason that i was so upset is i remember thinking that what in the world what what more could you what what more could you want and and what and are you there's sort of a feeling of are, are we not enough you know is this is this it it seemed like almost even at that moment in that at that time in your life your you were almost sort of running from something even in that moment, or are you wanting to change the reality a little bit in that moment? Is that I think I think I probably was. What what were you what well, did I have I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I was. I had a perfect life. I, I, I guess that's where I feel like I go back to it is it was a it was feeling. Like, I, I find when I've used pot, like, the thing that it takes away is sort of, it takes away f feeling. Feelings become yep. less, less intense. 
Uh, and, and I sort of feel like that's, for whatever reason, the feelings of, you know, oh my God, this is so perfect, I love my family so much, or, you know, oh my God, this should be so perfect, but I'm pissed off at my wife or, you know, I'm let down by my children or whatever it is you were feeling. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I I sort of feel like that's that's the thing that links all of the pot use, right? Is that true or, do you, or is that just my theory? I think, yeah, I think it's true. Uh, you, it's part of what you're running away from. The most important thing is that you're running away from something. You're running away from looking at the world as it really is. You push all of that direct experience of reality away. Um, it's not a good way to live. It's just not a good way to live. Oddly, for my dad, it wasn't just the happy moments he regretted checking out for, but the sad ones as well. For example, when his mother died of cancer. My aunt had been telling my dad that their mother's condition was getting worse, worse than their mother was letting on. If my dad hadn't been high, he says, he wouldn't have ignored what my aunt was telling him. He would have spent more time with his mother, engaged more with her doctors. I probably would have been in Cleveland with her when she had the operation that, you know, ended in her death. Um, oh, I didn't know that she died during the operation. Yes, they were, they were trying to kind of... St- she had bone cancer, mm-hmm. and they were trying to break a connection to the pituitary gland or something like that that um, that would reduce the pain. And, uh, you know, she wound up hemorrhaging and died. Mm-hmm. So. And did you think, you, you thought, you thought about going with her when she did that, and, and you decided not to. If I if it were to happen today, there's no question that I would have gone. That I would have driven her up to Cleveland. I mean, that's that would have been the most natural thing in the world to do. Instead, he says he got high, pushed the feelings aside, and avoided the whole thing. Which makes this last story I'll tell all the more amazing. Just last month, my 80 year old uncle Paul, my mom's brother fell ill suddenly and ended up in the hospital, near death, with a breathing tube down his throat. My parents got the call and were on a plane down to Florida where he lived the very next day. My uncle was a recluse. Except for occasional phone calls to his brothers and sisters, he interacted with almost no one. It was my parents and a neighbor that Paul barely knew confronting the sad end to his lonely life. Medicaid applications, power of attorney, hospice, finally cremation. And while my parents were down there going about all that, My dad did something that was, on the one hand, utterly ordinary, but that I found remarkable. He emailed us with regular, almost daily updates, giving the details on Paul's changing condition, going through next steps. The emails were direct and honest, filled with love for Paul and sadness about his decline. And I would sit there and read them, and they felt miraculous. A daily email on a tough, hard-to-face topic from my dad something he never could have done, organizationally or emotionally, when he was high. Like I said, as these stories go, ours wasn't that bad. My dad was a good dad. He read to us every night, took us on long hikes in search of snakes and salamanders to keep his pets, 
But his drug use did leave at least one lasting effect on me. I can't hear any story about a seemingly functional pothead with anything but a skeptical ear. From magazine features about rappers who are constantly high but still put out platinum records, to casual asides about this friend I know who smokes weed all day but is a great husband and father. Some part of me just can't buy it. Can't help but think there's more to that story. There's always something being run from. And there's always at least one person wondering, is that something me? Alex Bloomberg is one of the producers of our show. Coming up, Mark Marin, Wyatt Cenac, and what do you say to Drew Carey when you are contested on The Price is Right and you were also high on mushrooms? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, I Was So High, stories about doing drugs, the people who do lots of drugs, and the rest of us who maybe do not do as many drugs. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, You Were So High. So there are people who are not getting high every single day and organizing their whole lives around drugs. There are people in this world who get high and have fun and giggle with their friends. Among other things, drugs can be enjoyable. And we asked you to send in your drug stories on our blog and Facebook and Twitter. You sent in 2,600. Elna Baker was one of three staffers here at This American Life who went through those emails. And she joins me in the studio now. Elna, what were most of those emails like? I would say about half of them are people just doing really dumb stuff while they're high, like this. I called my friend Shane, and when I got him, I was like, well, I, I think I might have done some mushrooms. He's like, where are you? Uh, I was like, I'm at uh, the intersections of One Way and Do Not Enter. He's like, look at other signs. I thought I picked up the bud, and instead I <laughs> picked up goose poop and took a nice big hit of it. I would stop and write little poems. One just said, what if you were a cat and all you could say was meow? All you would have to talk about is meow. So one of the reasons why we asked listeners for their drug stories is because we thought we'd get a lot of funny stories. Were they funny? They were okay. (laughs) They weren't that funny. I mean, and I feel mean saying that because so many people actually put the effort to write the stories in, and we read 2,600 of these emails. But, and it just, they don't stand up unless you either know the person or were there, or if you were on drugs at the time, it was funny to you. It's like hearing people's dreams. Yeah. So it's like 2,600 emails, but they're not so funny. Mm-mm. There was a few, or one-liners, that, that I remember, inside jokes. Like? Uh... I'm loving that bunny. <laughs> that was some somebody. What some, are you talking about? <laughs> see, exactly. I, people had their drug catchphrases that I kind of liked that I want to use now. But <laughs> okay. one was was some little boy was on anesthesia and uh, he had this horrible surgery and uh, his parents were very worried and he looked up at the TV screen and there was a Animal Planet and he just looked up and was like, "I'm loving that bunny." <laughs> it made me laugh. But that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, I mean, that's about as good as it gets. Any surprises? Oh, yes. Uh, A lot of people, especially teenagers, 
will hit on their anesthesiologists while they're under the influence. So that's like a thing you know if you're an anesthesiologist. And if you're hot, yeah. Uh, And then, uh, oh, uh, several people doing shrooms had a vision of a Native American guide appearing to them on the path uh, in the distance and just gesturing for them to follow, which just seemed racist, right? It does. That's like a message from your unconscious. Hi, I've been meaning to tell you, by the way, you're racist. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) good. Now you know it. But you did get one email that, that turns out to be a really funny story. Who is this? Josh Androsky. Mm-hmm. So Josh one day goes out with his friends. They're they're drinking. They end up doing mushrooms. And then they go to be part of the studio audience of The Price is Right. Already without mushrooms, it would have been crazy. Here it comes! Because literally old people are dancing with children in the aisles. This, this one old lady starts like booty dancing on Drew Carey. There were just dollar signs and flashing lights. I mean, everybody's going crazy. They... We were, like, demonstrably the least high-looking people there. Television's most exciting hour of Fantastic Prizes, the fabulous 60-minute Price is Live! It was so just awe-inspiring seeing all the colored lights that I didn't actually hear come on down. Joshua Androsky, come on! All of a sudden, I looked on the stage, and there was this PA uh, who was holding up a sign with my full name on it, which was really, really scary, because in my head, it wasn't like, Josh Androsky, come on down. In my head, that sign was, Josh Androsky, we know that you're here. You know, there was that light bulb that went off my brain that was like, oh my God, I'm going to play the prices right now. Let's get the show started with the first prize ever been today on The Price is Right. Excellent idea, Drew. We're going to start off with a new home theater system. I was the first person to bid on the first prize on Contestants Row. Goes to whoever is closest to the actual retail price without going over. Uh, Big Papa, we're going to start with you. And I'm an idiot. And I bid a dollar every time. (laughs) For that, I'm going to bid one dollar. One dollar! All right, Big Papa bids a dollar. Big Papa hat, Dolly Parton shirt, bit a dollar. I'm a mystery, dude. Wrapped in an enigma, get used to it. (laughs) Miraculously, one of the $1 bids worked, and I got up, and then Drew Carey was like, hey, okay, cool, what do you do? But that's when, like, all the mushrooms hit me at once, And and I just looked at him and I said, uh, I'm a skateboard rabbi. Skateboard rabbi. Uh, Drew Carey turns to me and goes, how do you incorporate skateboards into Judaism? I, I was like, well, Drew Carey, we go to local high schools and attempt to turn religious extremism into religious extremism. Now, unfortunately, they cut it out of the show. I get it. <laughs> but if you watch the video, the studio audience is going crazy, and Drew Carey looks right at the camera and goes, He really is a skateboard rabbi! <laughs> Josh Androsky, he went home from The Price is Right with a diamond ring. Act three, bottom of the eighth. We now turn to this story from Wyatt Cenac, recorded live on stage at Seth Herzog's Suite at the Slipper Room in New York City. A lot of people, uh, they assume I smoke a lot of pot. 
because I talk kind of slow and I look like a high school jazz teacher. <laughs> I don't really smoke weed. I don't really, I don't smoke it that much because I don't get high smoking weed. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me. I've never, I've only once gotten high from pot and that was one time I ate a pot brownie. Yeah, that's right. That's the right response. <laughs> I had a pop brownie, it was about eight years ago. I was living in California at the time. And uh, it was Memorial Day weekend and I was with uh, three of my friends and we decided to go to a Dodgers game. And so it was me, my friend Ben, my friend Steve, and Steve's brother, Sweet Dave. <laughs> you could try to call him Dave if you want to, but he won't answer to anything but Sweet Dave. <laughs> Like, if a tiger was about to attack and you were like, Dave, look out! Sweet Dave would die. <laughs> and so it's the four of us. We're in the parking lot of Dodger Stadium. We're tailgating. And one of my friends is like, hey, I got some pot brownies. I'm going to let you guess which friend of mine said that. <laughs> Wrong. It was Ben. <laughs> but Sweet Dave was like, Sweet! <laughs> And so Ben had four pieces of pot brownies for the four of us. And it seems like, oh, that's, yeah, four and four. Here's a little twist. At this point in my life, at 30 years old, I had never had pot before. And also at that point in my life, I had no job. I was living off my credit cards, which my credit cards didn't really appreciate. I was about to get evicted, and I was five months behind on my car note. And so I looked at my friends and I was like, eh, I don't really have anything to live for. Let's go. And I ate the brownie. And then we went into the game and we sat down and we're all sitting in Dodger Stadium. And I can see that it's starting to hit my friends. Like they're all starting to look around and get a little giggly and like it's, it's hitting them. My friend Ben looks at me and he's like, you feel it yet? And I was like, nah, but I do got to take a piss. So I get up and I go to the bathroom and I come back. And Steve is in it hard. Like, I can see he's just sitting straight up and his arms are crossed. And he's just watching the field. Not the game. The field. <laughs> and Ben looks at me and he's like, you feel it yet? And I was like, nah. But I really got to take a piss. <laughs> and I did that eight more times. <laughs> and my phone rang. I answered the phone, but no words would come out couldn't say anything. And I can hear my friend Laura on the other end, and she's saying hello, and I'm trying so hard, I'm just like, say something, just talk, talk, damn it. And finally, I, I'm like, I am so high. This is terrible. And I did it in that voice, and I have never done that voice before in my life. I don't know where that voice came from. But I heard myself use that voice, and in my mind, I went, oh, I just gave myself Down syndrome. <laughs> now, let me just say, I know what Down syndrome is. I know that Down syndrome is something that you were born with when you were born with an extra chromosome. I know all that information. I knew that information then. But something about eating this brownie made me think that somehow I had grown an extra chromosome and I now had adult onset down syndrome. 
And for people who have Down syndrome, like that's something they grow up with and they grow up and they have healthy and happy lives. I just got it. <laughs> And I start freaking out. I'm just like, I'm going to have to explain this to people. And I start panicking. And I just start freaking out. Freaking out to the point where I start weeping in the middle of Dodger Stadium. And then I start laughing. And then I start weeping again. And then a bunch of cops start walking towards me. And something in my brain just clicks on. It's like, Wyatt. You have to keep it together right now. I was like, yes, keep it together. <laughs> yeah, Wyatt, there are cops right there. They cannot know you are high. No, they cannot know I am high. <laughs> and now my internal monologue has become my external monologue. <laughs> and I start pointing at the cops. <laughs> and I'm like, you cannot know I am high. I have to fool you. I am fooling you. <laughs> we decided maybe it's time we should leave Dodger Stadium. I'm not sure exactly how far into the game we were. I know it was past the first inning. We might not have made it to the third inning. But we leave and we get back to Steve's place. Ben immediately leaves, goes home, sees his roommate who's like, hey, what's up? And he goes... I think I killed Wyatt. <laughs> Steve decides to park himself on the couch and watch TV. Not TV shows, just a blank TV. <laughs> Sweet Dave went to a cookout. He was fine. Wyatt Snack. You can catch him every Monday night hosting a show called Night Train at Littlefield in Brooklyn, New York. Act four, straight man. So Mark Marin is a comedian who for a long time very aggressively did smoke pot every day. He also did coke and LSD and mushrooms. He says that for a while he did so many drugs that he was hearing voices. He first tried to get sober in 1988. He has now been continuously sober for over 15 years. He's best known uh, these days for his podcast, WTF, which is basically the New York Times of comedy podcasts. It's like the comedy podcast of record. Every comedian goes on to talk to Mark. He also has a TV series on IFC. We uh, reached out to him because he's been on both sides of the line, right? He's been a daily drug user, and he has been sober. And we thought that he would just have some perspective on what each side thinks of the other. So that we're doing this episode of our show this week with a lot of drug stories, and um, you seem like the perfect person to ask this question of because I know that you're someone who loves a funny story when you hear it, but you're also somebody who's seen what addiction can do to people. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that given how drugs kill people, right, and how dangerous they are, is it okay to laugh at these stories? Uh, of course it is. Why? Because they're funny. You know, it's like, you know, the, uh, most drug stories are, you know, stories about people who are out of control in some way and get into horrendously risky or embarrassing situations. Um, I, mean, I know, but isn't, I it, but isn't it glorifying a thing that shouldn't be glorified? You know what I mean? Like, 
Have people told you stories that you enjoyed? Like even on your podcast, have people told you stories that are funny stories, but there's a little part of you that's in recovery that cringes a little bit? Oh, yeah. But I think that the, the other side of glorification is, is I, I would say that it's as much of a, a, a red flag or a warning sign as it is a, a glorification. I mean, you're going to laugh on either side of that. It's like, oh, my God, that guy almost died. I am so glad that I do not live that life. But you can also see that as like that there is a, a strange courage to it. And I, I think I think that mythology is wearing away. That mythology being that there is a courage to the drug adventurer. Right. Uh, I, I think that was something that that the 60s was sort of built on. And, and I think that it was something that, you know, creativity and, and art was sort of built on that there was, you know, struggle and torment and alcohol and drugs that uh, that people wrestled this. And there was something to learn. Cr- there was something to learn from, from drugs. I, I do think there is something to learn. I, I do. do think there is something. Well, yeah, I mean, I did that big story on, uh, on my 95 HBO half hour about going to a Jerry Garcia concert and being on Mushrooms by myself. And I, I will stand by that story as being the primary thing that you learn on drugs. Wait, I don't know this uh, story. I'm I'm sorry to say. Like what 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 happens? Not to make you like do an entire bit here, but like but but essentially what happens? Well, what happens is I I'm going to see Jerry Garcia with my roommates. Uh it, it was at the Orpheum, I believe in Boston and I'm in college. And uh, I'd gotten my tickets from these two girls that I didn't know that well. One of them was in my class, and my roommates had their tickets. And we're going to the concert, and we just eat a big bag of mushrooms. And I get, we get to the concert, and they're going to sit somewhere else. So I'm all alone with these strange girls, you know, and I'm beginning to trip on, on mushrooms, and, and it's not good. You, you know, like I, you just feel that, that weird kind of amp. You, mm-hmm. get, you start getting that, amp, that surge where, you know, you begin to trip on hallucinogens, and you're like, your, your head feels like it's about, pop, it's about to pop off, and, you know, your perception is starting to change. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm starting to freak out a, a little bit because I don't know who I'm with. My roommates are down somewhere else sitting there, and, you know, I'm looking at these girls, and their faces are a little too large now, and everything getting a little sweaty and uh you know i'm starting to panic and i'm thinking like okay i could always go to the emergency room if i freak out i can just go to the emergency room and uh i think the 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 women i'm sitting with who, who don't really know me are sensing that i'm starting to panic and they're like do you want some gum and, and i'm like oh god that would be so good gum would be just be the right thing right now like everything is when you're tripping oh of course gum mm-hmm. and they give me a piece of gum and it's fresh enough and I didn't really register it until I put it in my mouth. So this gum explodes. You know, I think uh, <laughs> the yeah. gum with the, like the squirty inside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And you know, I think I'm bleeding and I, I don't like, you know, I, I spit the gum out and you know, I'm just panicking, you, you know, it's just awful. And then like, you know, the lights go down and then, and then Jerry comes out and he looks fat and you're, you know, I'm hyper, uh, you know, sensitive on the mushrooms and I'm, I think I'm reading things and I'm, I'm feeling things. I'm an empath. And I realize like Jerry's in trouble, you know, he's overweight, you know, he's, <laughs> his, his voice doesn't sound good, you know? So now I'm freaking out on Jerry, who is really supposed to be <laughs> the, the ultimate guide through this experience. Right. You know? Like the, the calmest, right, calm inducing right. person. Right, he's the mythological drug Buddha, and and if I'm getting a bad vibe from Jerry, you know, I I got nowhere to go, 
And then I noticed there's one of those guys, you know, sitting in front of me, uh, you know, who's like clearly been to too many dead shows and done so much acid that he operates at a different frequency than other people. He's kind of jerky and, you know, he's got very kind of, um, uh, you know, graceful but but odd, you know, way of, of just holding his body. You see them at these type of events. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, he'll help me out. You know, this guy will throw me a line. You know, so I... So I'm trying to socialize with this guy and I tap him on the shoulder and I go, hey, you know, pretty soon one day Jerry's going to come out and his, him and his guitar are just going to be fused. They're going to be like one thing. And this guy just cocks around with like such, you know, precise hallucinogenic focus. And he looks me right in the eye and he goes, just hang on, man. Just hang on. <laughs> 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 and, he, and, and he turns around and, and I'm like, and, and, and that's it. I, I, I will do that. I will hang on. Wait, and is that the insight one can have on drugs is just hang on? Yeah. A lot of times if you just hang on, it'll pass. When you were smoking every day, did you feel superior to people who weren't doing drugs? I, I, uh, I, I felt like I had a secret. I don't know if that's superior, but I felt like, you know, like, oh, man, you know, I'm so glad I'm seeing this like I'm seeing it. So I guess there is a slight superiority in that, that uh, I'm not on this uh, this hamster wheel, man. You know, I'm just walking down the street and I'm really seeing what the sunlight is doing. Yeah, it's it's sort of double edged, though, because like the squares are the people that, you know, try to function in the world like a weird moment back when I was doing a lot of coke. Um, and I think it speaks to your point. Like I had this woman that I dated uh, in college. She came out to visit me in LA and I was living at this creepy, you know, old mansion behind the comedy store, you know, that, the, that Mitzi Shore owned. And we were just up there all, at all hours doing drugs and staying up all night and playing guitar and talking about whatever for hours. So this woman comes to visit me. And, uh, you know, it's like three in the morning and she's just a regular girl who, you know, she works for, you know, uh, now she works for in health administration, but, but so she comes out to visit me and we're up in the middle of the night and I'm like, just reveling in it. Like, this is amazing, man. Nobody lives like this. We're, we're living, you you know? And then like, uh, like she leaves, you know, completely discombobulated and and visibly sort of upset uh, for things I couldn't quite understand. And uh, and she sends me a, a, a handwritten letter because you know, that's what we did then. You know, basically explaining to me, she, she's like, uh, you know, when you stood up and just celebrated the fact that nobody lives like we do. And she wrote, uh, I don't know if you know this, but nobody would really want to live like that. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, like, what do you think you're doing over there? <laughs> you know, like, staying up all night, you know, doing blow, playing guitar, and talking about nothing for hours to the point where you, none of you can function in the real world at all. It's like, no, we're we're the ones who are winning, you know. So that superiority is very short sighted. And each and each side feels superior to the other. Well, I think, but no, I, I do think that their side sort of wins. But yeah, you know, their it, side being being the the straight people. Well, being the people that f- can function in in this society that we, you know, we're we're supposed to sort of function in. Well, it's I, I, f- I feel like you get so quickly in in this kind of discussion too. Like there there are just two different ways to drink or do drugs, and and there's all the people who can't control it, and they end up alcoholics and addicts. And then there's all the people who can control it, you know, who, who, you know, they can do it occasionally and they're fine. 
And it's just those horrible people. (laughs) (laughs) Those those horrible people that can have a couple of drinks, or even worse, the people like, yeah, I smoke a couple of cigarettes maybe on the weekend. You horrible person. Where's your (laughs) sense of commitment? I mean, don't you want to invest your life in this project? I want to play you a clip of you. This is you performing in 1998. I think you're just off drugs at this point, but maybe not. In all honesty, I feel bad for people who have never been addicted to anything because they're the real losers. You want to know why? Because they just don't know what it's like to really want something and get it again and again and again. until they're sick and have to stop. That's passion. Do you still feel that way? Yeah. <laughs> I feel that way as, as a survivor. And, 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 and it's very hard to sit here and say, it's hard for me to say, like, I don't regret the times I did drugs. I don't regret the times that, you know, I almost died or was in, in horrible situations. I don't, I don't regret, you know, wasting possibly, you know, years of my life because I, I, I can't live like that. I can't live in those regrets. But, but some of those times were great times. Some of those times were hilarious times. Mm-hmm. I don't regret all those times. I mean, am I happy that it didn't drag me down the hole and hurt a lot of other people and, 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 and make me sick in a way that I, I could not get better or, or even die? I'm, I'm happy about that. But I, I, I am also, you know, thrilled that I had some of the experiences I did. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, it, that's, that's the two sides of it. Mark Marin, the second season of his TV show on IFC starts May 8th. Act 5, DEA agent takes a hit. So this is a moment when everything seems in flux in how our country sees and deals with drugs, particularly marijuana. Case in point, the past few months in Congress, the House Government Oversight Committee has been holding a series of hearings called Mixed Signals, the Administration's Stands on Marijuana. These are the committee's first hearings on pot in a decade. And they're holding them now in large part because so many states, 20 states plus Washington, D.C., now allow some form of legal marijuana which, of course, is in direct conflict with federal drug law. And one of the interesting things about these hearings is that two congressmen who think that our marijuana policies are totally out of whack, they think that pot should not be illegal under federal law, have been using these hearings as an opportunity to basically lay into narcs, to basically just to chew them out. It's kind of incredible. You almost never hear people on two sides of this issue talk to each other this directly, this fiercely, in public. One side, okay sees pot smoking as normal, everyday, no biggie, what's the fuss? The other side sees the everydayness of pot as the problem, right, as a menace. Brian Reed tells about one of these congressional face-offs. I'm going to play you my favorite tape from these hearings. It's of one of the congressmen, Steve Cohen from Memphis, in an oversight committee hearing on March 4th. Cohen isn't even on the oversight committee, by the way. He asked for special permission to take part in the hearing because he had some things he wanted to say to the witness. Thomas Harrigan. Harrigan is second in charge of the agency tasked with enforcing federal drug laws, the DEA. The two men do not see eye to eye. Mr. Harrigan, you've been in this business now for close to 30 30 years. 1987, you start with the DEA. How have your views changed on marijuana in those 30 years? Uh, To be quite honest with you, sir, very little. I was afraid of that. I, I, I I see the devastation 
That's enough. The fact that it's changed very little says a lot. Do you want about, me to respond to your no, question, No, sir, sir? because I'd we be have limited – I know you would. We have limited time. The fact that it's changed very little – shows that you haven't kept up with society, you haven't kept up with science, and it's part of the science problem. Science and medical but, I do keep up with, sir. All right. You mentioned in your uh, statements that, quote, it insults our common values. I want you to read me what you said. Yes, sir. I believe this is uh, the section... You're referring to, we also know that marijuana destroys lives and families, undermines our economy, and insults our common values. What are the common values it insults? For me, sir, as, no, for, as for, a, I, I will tell you. I will tell you if, if you, you said let me, we know, you're speaking as clairvoyant voice of America. What are our common well, values? I, I, would, I would venture to guess um, all of law enforcement, just about every single parent out there as well. Every again, single parent? Yes, every single parent. It's based on, again, medical, sir, and scientific fact, not public opinion. Okay, I am not the medical expert, as I said before. Everything that I do is based on my 30-plus years of law enforcement. Let me stop you for a minute. You said it insults our common values. What is the value it insults? What is the value it insults? Yeah, you said this. Do we have all? I could, I could easily go on and on. Uh, you haven't started yet. Well, if you, uh, you continue to interrupt me, I would be happy to address your question. Answer my question, sir. Yes. It, it, you know what? From a bare minimum, as a parent, from, uh, as a former educator, as a law enforcement official for all these years, I have seen the devastation that marijuana has caused not only on individuals, on families and communities. And that, what's our common value, though? You still haven't stated the common value. And the fact is 55% of Americans are in favor of decriminalization or legalization. i got to imagine some of them are parents. Is, I mean, your statement that all parents are against this is ludicrous. What do you think, people that are in favor of decriminalization and policy said, don't I procreate? Said, I said most parents you said all. Would, be a, would be opposed to this. And most is wrong, too. 55% of America. Are they all parents? I don't think that the polls went into that, but I suspect a whole bunch of them were. It's not this went on for more than five minutes. Jews. Let's get beyond Richard Nixon. I called the DEA to see if Thomas Harrigan wanted to come on the radio and have a chance to actually respond, since Cohen barely let him get a word in edgewise. But the DEA spokesperson said Harrigan was busy preparing for another hearing this week, so he couldn't do it. As for Congressman Cohen, one of his biggest beefs with the country's drug policy is the fact that marijuana is classified as a Schedule I drug. That means in the eyes of the federal government, marijuana has a high potential for abuse and no accepted medical use. Heroin, LSD, peyote, these are all Schedule I. Cocaine and meth, on the other hand, are Schedule II, a less serious designation. So under federal law, marijuana is considered the most dangerous type of drug, more dangerous than cocaine and meth. In Cohen's words, that's poppycock. He says marijuana is the least dangerous of these drugs, and most people know it, including, apparently, President Obama. In a New Yorker profile earlier this year, Obama said, quote, As has been well documented, I smoked pot as a kid, and I view it as a bad habit and a vice, not very different from the cigarettes that I smoked as a young person up through a big chunk of my adult life. I don't think it is more dangerous than alcohol. In fact, Obama said, quote, In terms of its impact on the individual consumer, 
he believes pot is less dangerous than alcohol. Which just shows how confused we are as a country right now when it comes to what we're supposed to be doing about marijuana. You've got the President of the United States saying something like that about pot, while at the same time he's the boss of an entire bureaucracy with thousands of people whose job is to think the opposite. Brian Reed is one of the producers of our show. Well, our program was produced today by Sean Cole and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffe Walt, Sarah Koenig, Miki Meek, Jonathan Menhivar, Brian Reed, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production help from Allison Davis. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon is our production manager. Elise Bergerson is our administrative assistant. Adrian Mathowitz runs our website. Research help from Julie Beer and Michelle Harris. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Matthew David Sleep, Elliot Armstrong, Ben Garmisa, and Patrick Malone. Our website Website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, whenever I get on the back of his motorcycle with him, he never lets me wear a helmet. Just hang on, man. Just hang on. And I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.